Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. It's page uh, 1157 in your pew Bibles. We'll read verses 1 through 13. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things." His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Eric. Will you bow your heads with me? Dear God, we continue to invite you into our presence this morning, and I pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord, soften our minds, (laughs) that we might be open to your truth. God, I pray that you would just make yourself known to us, that we would be drawn to you, Lord, and that we would leave here not the same people that we were when we came in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes I feel like I was reflecting on this throughout the week. Sometimes as a Christian, and particularly as a pastor, and even more particularly as a preacher, uh, I, I often feel like Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite. If you guys remember from the movie, Napoleon has this friend Pedro who is running for school president or something like that, class president. And Pedro comes up with his, his slogan, his campaign slogan, and he, you know, he announces it before the school assembly, and, and this is his platform. He says this, if you vote for me, All of your wildest dreams will come true. 
If you vote for me, all of your wildest dreams will come true. And honestly, sometimes I feel like when I get up here, the reality of the gospel is so amazing. It is so insane that I feel like Pedro. Not that to say that all of your wildest dreams would come true is a very American individualistic way of approaching life. Okay, so that's certainly not what the gospel teaches, but everything that's in that statement actually is contained in the gospel. That, 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 that in, a, in a sense, that's true, that you don't, really don't even know what your wildest dreams should be, I think God would say. He'd say, your wildest dreams are kind of silly. You don't really even realize what your dreams should be. So I'm not just going to make all of your wildest dreams come true because I love you too much for that. But the heart of the gospel is it's insane when you look at the promises of Scripture, beginning with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and running all the way through the Scriptures and coming to, to culmination in Christ, it's, it's, I feel like Pedro. Because what we've discovered as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and we've entitled this series Reconciliation, is because God's plan is nothing short of bringing reconciliation to all things. God's plan is to reconcile all Things. We, we saw this in, in verse 10 of chapter 1. It says, He made known to us the, the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That His ultimate plan is to reconcile to reconcile all things. This word reconciliation is, is a word that I, we use sometimes in terms of, of finances, right? You want to reconcile the books. If, if, if something's off, if your checkbook is off from your bank statement, then you, you try to reconcile it. It's, it's out of joint. It's not in line. And, and what this is, is, is saying, this idea, is that, is that things are out of line. Things are out of order. Things are out of sorts in this world. And God's ultimate plan is to get things back in line, to reconcile the books. One of the things that I love about Christianity, what I think rings true about Christianity, is precisely the way in which it deals with the problem of the out-of-jointness of our world. The way that Christianity deals with the, the suffering and the heartache and the problems and the challenges that are that are rampant in our world. And, and I think that the way Christianity deals with it really rings, rings true over and against the way that I think other worldviews address this. I think in our world, there, uh, there are kind of two ways in which this issue of the out-of-jointness of our world is dealt with. On one hand, you have some religions and some spiritualities that say that the way that you should deal with the out-of-jointness of this world is through detachment. Right? Just detach yourself from it. In other words, you, you need to come to the realization that, that it's really just an illusion. That pain and suffering and, 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 and evil and good, it's, it's really all just an illusion. That, that, that if, if you feel that, if you experience that, then you're not in, in connection with the oneness that is the universe. And so if it, you, just, you need to realize that, that this out-of-jointness is just an illusion, and if you can detach yourself from it and come to a real a mental sense of true reality, which is that it's really not even there. It's all just an illusion. But that's, that's one way in which our world deals with it. Another way in which our world deals with this out-of-jointness in our world uh, is through distraction. 
through sort of numbing ourselves to the out-of-jointness in this world and out-of-jointness in our own lives. This is where I think a lot of modern, postmodern secularism is. Uh, there's a song by John Mayer, who's one of my favorite artists, even though I disagree with basically everything that he says. Um, but he's a great artist, and he has this, this song called Numb is the New Deep. Numb is the New Deep. And, and he says, you know, just deep and trying to think things through and try to figure things out. That's just, no, no, that's, that's old. That's passe. What we need to do now is just numb ourselves. I just numb ourselves to, to reality. So we numb ourselves uh, to the out-of-jointness in our lives uh, by pursuing different things. Maybe it's pursuing pleasure, pursuing uh, more stuff. You know, maybe I don't know what to do with the out-of-jointness in this world, so I know I'll buy a new car. Uh, I don't know what to do with the out-of-jointness uh, in my life, so I'm going to go, uh, go find another relationship. Uh, I don't know what to do with all of the out-of-jointness uh, in my world, so I'm going to just bury myself into my career and just pursue that, and that will numb me from everything else. Uh, I don't know what to do with the out-of-jointness in this world, so I will drown myself in, in whatever it is, in drugs, in alcohol. I mean, literally numb myself. I'll numb myself to this world. But Christianity takes a very different approach. It it neither encourages us to try to convince ourselves that the out-of-jointness of this world is just an illusion that we need to try to get over mentally, nor does it encourage us to numb ourselves to it. But it boldly proclaims that we can face it head-on because we know that ultimately God will reconcile all. That we can face whatever trials, whatever difficulties, whatever heartache we might experience because God is going to reconcile all things. He's he's going to get it it right. And so we see this this central theme that God is going to make all things right. He's going to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, under Christ. And we see in this passage that at the heart of this whole concept of reconciliation, there are really two central parts to it that what needs to take place is that we need to be first reconciled to God and we need to be reconciled to one another. Vertical reconciliation, horizontal reconciliation. We need to be reconciled to God and we need to be reconciled to one another. First of all, we need to be reconciled to God. Uh, I, I think that in our society... We all have a tendency, we, we realize that things are out of sorts in our lives, and so we're always trying to make things right, right? So uh, I'm trying to make my marriage right. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get my finances right. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get my career right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get whatever it is. We see all of these things in our lives that are out of sorts, and we say, oh, I, I, I spend my whole life trying to get these things Right, and I, and I think what the Bible is telling us is that actually the number one thing you've got to get right is your relationship with God. That everything else just kind of pales in comparison. That that's the thing that you, you've got to get that right. It, it's like God is the elephant in the room. My wife and I have entered into a unique phase of our lives. Uh, it, it seems sort of like the perfect storm. Because our children are old enough and capable enough to bring unreconciliation into all kinds of things. 
uh, but they aren't old enough and mature enough to reconcile things. So uh, they're very capable of making a mess of the house, uh, but they're not very good at putting it back in order. They're very good at pulling books off of the shelf. They love to do that. They, I, I've never seen anyone have more fun pulling books off the shelf than my daughter. Right? They, they, they're good at pulling books off the shelf, but, but putting them back on, not so good. Uh, they're very good at, at, at unfolding laundry, uh, pulling it out of the laundry basket. They're not so good at folding it and putting it back in. Uh, they're very good at, at dumping a hundred-piece puzzle on the floor. Um, I don't know who came up with the idea that a hundred-piece puzzle was a good idea for kids. I, I, I mean, I don't know what they were thinking. So they're very good at, at dumping a hundred-piece puzzle on the floor. Not so good at putting it back in the box, right? So my poor wife, because of this perfect storm, spends most of her time just you know trying to follow them up because you've got. You know, she, it's really one against two. It's not fair. So she's in one corner trying to reconcile this part of the house while they're over in the other corner bringing unreconciliation. And, and, and Grace is actually, it's, it's just gotten worse because for the longest time, uh, you could put things on the kitchen counter. That was the safe zone, right? That was safe. Uh, it was like that's where you put knives and, and you know, matches and anything that looked dangerous, you just put on the kitchen counter. That was safe, right? But now she can reach onto the kitchen counter. It's like nothing's safe anymore. There's no safe zone. And she started to be able to open doors. It's like Jurassic Park. You guys remember when the velociraptors, they realized they've learned to open doors. And then terror is just unleashed. That's what's going on in our house. So my, my poor wife, right, she's in this phase where just, you know, spend your, your whole day just trying to, to reconcile it, try to keep things in order. Now, here's the thing. I want you to imagine here for a moment that, that your house, you're, you've got puzzle pieces and pencils and, and uh, you know, spilled milk and yogurt all over the floor, and you've got all of these things that need to be reconciled. But I want you to imagine here for a moment if there were an elephant in your house. Okay, think about that. Think about that. There's actually an elephant in your house. Now, at that point, I don't think it matters how many puzzle pieces are on the floor. I don't think it really matters how much milk is spilled on the floor. I think probably the thing that you need to deal with is the elephant in the room. I mean, if I come home from work and the house is perfectly clean, there's no puzzle pieces on the floor, there's no milk spilled on the floor, there's no laundry trails throughout the hallways, it's perfectly clean, but there's an elephant in the house? Do you think I'm even going to notice the clean house? See, if there's an elephant in the room, that's what you've got to deal with, and I think what the Bible is telling us is that God is the elephant in the room. You can get everything in order. You can try to get everything in order, but you've still got this, this elephant in the room. And so you, the number one thing that we need to do to, to bring reconciliation into our lives is, is to get right with God. And the heart of Christianity, the heart of the gospel is that God has come to reconcile our relationship with him. So many different verses I could point to. We'll just look here in our passage, verse 12. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. 
in him, in him. Well, in him, what does that mean, in him? Go back to verse 11. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right here's where we get to the heart of the gospel, is that in Jesus, we can be reconciled to God. That on the cross, Jesus came and he died for our sin, that, that, that the books could be, could be reconciled, that they were off. They were off. And, and when the books are off, when you realize that there's an error in your books, then what you need to do is forgive the error. <laughs> you need to wipe the error away so that your books are in line. And, and, and in Jesus, God has, has wiped that clean. He has reconciled the books so that no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter how far we have turned away from God, that we can enter back into his presence. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, the heart of Christianity is that Jesus died on the cross, that he absorbed our sin so that we can be reconciled with God. And if we will just acknowledge that, if we will just confess our sin and say, I need to be reconciled with you, that he forgives us and we can enter back into his his presence. By the grace of God, we can enter into his presence. We, we, we see the grace of God just sort of permeates everything that Paul talks about. It permeates this passage. Verse 2, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me. Verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of God's people, this grace was given me. You see, Paul, he says, though I am less than the least of all God's people. You know, Paul, I don't know if you realize what Paul did before he became a Christian. Some of us, you know, we think, well, my gosh, my sin was so bad that I don't know how God could ever forgive me. Um, I don't know what you've done, but did you ever go around trying to persecute and kill Christians? I mean, if you were going to rank sin, which God doesn't do, but if you were going to, I would say persecuting and killing Christians would be pretty high on the list. And that's why Paul comes from this perspective, I am the least, I'm the least, because this was his background. And yet he sees that he, the least of all, was chosen by God's grace to be a servant of God, that it's all entirely by his grace that we can be reconciled with God. So reconciliation, first of all, involves being reconciled to God. But then what we also see in this passage is that this reconciliation isn't just vertical, but it's also horizontal, that Christ didn't just come to reconcile us with God, but to reconcile us with one another. Verse 2, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. So we hear this word mystery. That this mystery has been revealed to him. That, that something that was hidden before, something that was hidden from the people of God, something that was hidden has now been made known. Now what is this thing, this mystery that has now been revealed? In reading this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Uh, An insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, what is the mystery of Christ? Well, Christ. Let's talk about Christ here uh, for a minute. The, The word Christ, the Greek word Christos, 
is really just a word that means Messiah. And that's actually something that's quite important. In fact, I would encourage you when you read through the Bible, anytime you see Christ, just retranslate it in your head as Messiah. Uh, that's something that is so straightforward and so simple, but in some respects has been lost on so much of Christianity and it's caused a lot of uh, confusion. Uh, but you just need to know this, that Christ just, I mean, put it this way, um, Jesus was not the son of Mary and Joseph Christ. Okay, that, that wasn't their last name. That's not what this is. It's Jesus, the Messiah. Now, who's the Messiah? What's the Messiah all about? Well, the Messiah was the promised king of Israel. The God had, had promised to King David a, a kingdom and a throne that would never end. And the Israelites got quite disillusioned when basically the Davidic kingdom just collapsed. And so for hundreds of years, they're, they're longing and they're waiting for God to raise up this king, this Messiah, the anointed one that in the line of David who would come and who would, who would, would be their king. And, and that's, that's, the, that's the Messiah. Okay, so the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it was now has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Now, what is this mystery? What is this mystery of the Messiah? We find it in verse 6. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. You, You see... The people of Israel, when they thought about the coming of the Messiah, they thought about it almost entirely in terms of how the Messiah would come and would reconcile them with God. The Messiah would come and he would reconcile them with God. But actually what this is saying is that the Messiah didn't just come to reconcile them with God, he came to reconcile all people with God and in that to reconcile them with everyone else. You see, it wouldn't be a mystery the idea that the Messiah had come to bring reconciliation with God, that, that wouldn't be a mystery. That's what they knew. That's what they were expecting. What they missed is that the Messiah had also come to unite them with all peoples as they are united and reconciled to God. And, and actually, I think in contemporary Christianity, we miss this as well often, that we think of the gospel entirely in terms of us being reconciled with God. And though that is certainly the heart of it, it's the elephant in the room, It seems that Paul understands the gospel as being not just about vertical reconciliation, but horizontal reconciliation, that it's a matter of drawing all people together into one family. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. These three togethers represent three substantival phrases which actually reflect just three individual words in the Greek. It's really just three words which are translated into these three substantival phrases. But I actually think the NIV does a good job here in drawing out the meaning of these words and highlighting the togetherness which is inherent in these words. That that he's saying Christ didn't just come to reconcile us with God, but to reconcile us together and to bring us together into one family. Heirs together. Heirs. Heirs are part of the same family. So we we get this incredible vision that Paul has here. His vision is for all peoples to become a part of the same family. That irrespective of your background, 
irrespective of where you're from or, or what you're like or your language or anything, that, that, that the desire is for you to become like family. And the early church, they, they got a hold of this and they, they actually started to refer to one another as brother and sister. Now, what's interesting is that in, in contemporary Western culture, that's not all that foreign. I mean, there are certain pockets of even contemporary American culture where people call each other brother and sister, and it doesn't even necessarily have any sort of religious connotation. And actually, I think probably the reason for that is because of the influence of Christianity on Western culture. But the reality is it's just become sort of a, uh, something cultural, and the meaning of it has really been lost. To the, to the early Christians, they understood quite literally, I'm referring to this person as my brother and as my sister. And in the ancient world, in the ancient Roman world, they all thought this was really weird. There are writings uh, in, that, in the early time period where they're just like, those Christians are really weird because they call people brother and sister who aren't even related to them. They got this idea that we, we are being reconciled with one another. You know, I'm um, obviously very excited to have my brother here with me. And when he leaves, I'm going to miss him deeply. But I think that the heart of the gospel here is that as God works within his people, as God works within his church, that that anywhere you go where there are Christians, you should have brothers and sisters. That everywhere that you go, you should have a church family. And one of the things that Laura and I are so grateful for is the degree to which this church has welcomed us in as family. And that's something we can't lose. That's something that we have to hold on to, that that, that we, are, we are family, and that we want to welcome others in. We want to draw others into the family. God didn't just come to reconcile us with God. He came to reconcile us with one another. So we see this picture of reconciliation. God has come to reconcile all things. He, he's come to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth together under Christ. That he's come to deal with the out-of-jointness in this world. He's come to deal with the broken relationships. He's come to deal with the, 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 the deep-seated bitterness that individuals hold towards one another, the deep-seated bitterness that entire countries, entire peoples hold towards one another. He, he's come to bring reconciliation to all things. And what is the means through which he's going to accomplish this? What is the means through which God is going to bring reconciliation into this world? It's through the church. It's through the church. Verse 10, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That through the church, as, as, as we are in Christ, as we are united with Christ, then we become Christ to this world. We become the means through which reconciliation is brought into this world. And, and I think in this context, I don't think Paul is, is talking about anything specific, about any sort of evangelism program or any sort of social action program. I think he, he's just talking about the church being the church. 
He's talking about the outside world looking in on the church. And what do they see when they see in the, in the church? They see a window into what a reconciled world would look like. They see a, a window into the future as, as one as one New Testament scholar put it, and you guys know how much I love time travel, I couldn't believe I was reading this commentary. This famous uh, commentator, F.F. Bruce, said something like, the church is to be the pilot project for the future reconciliation of the universe. I'm like, I'll bet that guy likes back to the future, right? But this is the idea that when the, when, when the outside world looks into the church that that they see a picture of how things are supposed to be, how things are supposed to be reconciled, that, that they look into the church and they see how a marriage is supposed to operate. They look into the church and they see how leadership is to be carried out. Uh, they, they, they look into the church and, and, and they see how conflict is to be dealt with. They look into the church and they see how, how to deal with with those who are needy and how to show compassion on the poor and the needy, how to deal with difficult people. I think the world should be able to look into the church and see how do we deal with difficult people? How do we deal with people who are really struggling and hurting? You see, it's not that that the people on the outside should look into the church and see perfect people. Right? I think sometimes we could come with that perspective. Well, okay, well, wait a minute. If they're supposed to look in at us, then, and we're going to represent God, then, boy, we better make sure we just have perfect people here, right? Because what if they look in and there's a bunch of imperfect people here? Well, they can't see that, right? So, so the perfect people, we need to keep all of the imperfect people out. But the problem is that the very moment when we perfect people keep the imperfect people out is when we cease to be perfect people. Because at the heart of what it means to be a perfect person is to give yourself for those who are hurting, for those who are in need, for those who are broken. And so if people on the outside look in and see imperfect stuff going on in our church and then just dismiss us, that's on them. Because they're not really understanding what's going on. But if anybody from the outside actually took time to come and spend time with the church, spend time with the people, that they would see all kinds of things that aren't right. But, but hopefully what they would see is a culture of healing, a culture of grace, a culture in which these things are being dealt with in a healthy manner, and, and, and a way in which they don't see on the outside. Because either on the outside you just exclude the people that don't, you don't really get along with and doesn't really work and they're kind of a pain, or they're a part of the system and it's just all conflict, right? But if they look into the church, they see this mess that is, is being dealt with. They see all of these things, marriage and finances and compassion, being dealt with in a very different manner, under a very different kind of wisdom than what they're used to seeing. His intent that was through The church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, what what Paul here is is pointing back to is this idea that that there is a such thing as a spiritual reality that is at work in our world. That there is a such thing as evil. That there is a such thing as sin that is at work in our world. And, and, And going back to chapter 1 where he talks about those who are following the spirit of disobedience. That there are forces at work in our world that that are 
communicating a different kind of wisdom and leading us to operate in a way that does not bring about reconciliation, but brings about disintegration. And Paul uses, Paul throughout his writings uses all kinds of different language to talk about evil and sin. Lots of different language. And and I I think, particularly in the book of Ephesians, he uses a lot of the language of, of a spiritual battle of rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And and the famous verse later on in the, book, in, in the book where he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this, this dark world. He uses this language of, of, of spiritual forces at work. And I think part of the reason that he does that is precisely because he understood the context to, in which he was preaching. We saw at the beginning of our series that Ephesus was a place where people believed very strongly in spiritual forces. They believe very strongly in, in, in sort of the demonic world of gods and all this kind of stuff. And, and so he was, he was speaking their language. He's saying, yes, this is all part of evil that is at work in our, in our culture and, and a wisdom that is completely different, a wisdom that does not lead to reconciliation but leads to disintegration. And so he's saying now the purpose of the church is to demonstrate an entirely different kind of wisdom. Now, what is that wisdom? What is the wisdom of God? To make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, this phrase, wisdom of God, actually only occurs in the New Testament in two other places. It occurs in the Gospel of Luke. And there it's used very differently, really just as a way of personifying God himself. And the only other place where it's used is in 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn with me here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. And here Paul uses this same phrase, the wisdom of God. And in this we're going to get a glimpse of, well, what, what is at the heart of this, of this wisdom of God? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 20 on page 1,128 of your pew Bibles. Beginning in verse 20, it says, Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What is the wisdom of God that is at the very heart of everything that we do? It's that Christ is crucified. Christ is crucified, that at the very heart of the wisdom of God that we seek to preach and to embody is this idea of sacrifice. Sacrifice is at the heart of the wisdom of God, that sacrifice is the means through which we can bring reconciliation. Let me show you one other passage in which Paul talks very specifically about the ministry of reconciliation. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. You can turn if you want, uh, page 1,145. And here we're going to see again, here he's talking about the ministry of reconciliation, that we are called to be the means through which he brings 
reconciliation. And in this, we're going to see, well, what is at the heart of how this is carried out? Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So here we see it. Through us, we are the means through which, through which God brings reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's a, that's a verse that is very well known. Uh, it, it's a verse that we sang in one of our songs earlier today. But I actually think there's an element of this verse that is often missed when we miss the context in which this verse falls. We kind of all know this verse just kind of pulled out. But when you see the context, I think we see something interesting about this. He became sin who knew no sin. Okay, what is that talking about? That's talking about how Christ became sin for us. That, that he took the place of our sin so that we could be freed from sin, that he, he suffered in our place. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And I think then this, the context here, remember the context here is us doing this ministry of reconciliation, us being ambassadors of Christ. And so I think what this is getting at when it talks about us becoming the righteousness of God is that we embody the very righteousness of Christ. That we, we live out, that, that what it means, in fact, to embody the righteousness of Christ is precisely to give yourself for others. That what it means to embody the righteousness of Christ is to give yourself as a sacrifice for others. And then we find, actually, in the very next passage in chapter 6, Paul talks about his hardships. He talks about all the things that he has suffered, all the things that he endures, and I think he sees that as, a, as the way in which he embodies the righteousness of Christ. And through that brings reconciliation. God has called us the church to be the means through which reconciliation comes as the world looks into how the church operates, that they see a very different way of doing things. And at the heart of that difference is sacrifice. My prayer for this church, beginning with myself, is that we would become a people who more and more are able to give ourselves in sacrifice for one another. That we would give ourselves in love for one another, that we would, not, we would not approach what it means to be in the family as a matter of what I get out of things, but, but what can I give for those around me? How can I help those around me? You see, that entire environment is very different than the way our world operates. And, 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 and I, I, I would challenge each and every one of us to think about that. In what ways 
can I give myself more and sacrifice myself for God and for his people? Trusting that that is exactly what Christ has done for me and that in that, I have the strength to be able to sacrifice. That's what this world is looking for. That's what this world is looking for. They're looking, they're looking for a place in a community where people really give themselves for one another. We now come to a time of communion. And communion is an opportunity for us to reflect on the wisdom of God. Communion is a time for us to reflect on the sacrifice that God has given for us. That though we don't deserve his love, though we don't deserve his grace, though we don't deserve to be reconciled with him, that by his grace we can, we can be one with him. My prayer is that as we take communion, that we would, we would sense the reconciliation that comes through the cross and that also then through that we would be empowered to go out and to sacrifice ourselves to bring reconciliation into this world. Ushers, come forward. Let's pray. Dear God, we are humbled by your wisdom. We are humbled by your grace. We are humbled that the means and the way in which you carry out your kingdom is not through the wielding of power, but through the relinquishing of it. That through the giving of yourself, Lord, you bring healing into this world. God, I pray for those of us who are broken right now, for those of us who are hurting, and I pray that as we reflect upon the cross, as we take these elements, that the power of your grace would work in our hearts and bring healing and reconciliation into our lives. Lord, I pray that as we take this, that the very power, the very spirit of God would work in us and strengthen us that we can go out and give ourselves for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.